Good morning. As Joel mentioned, we're reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is in God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. And this is God's word. Well, uh, good morning, and um, it's great, great that you're here. If you're joining us for the first time, we're currently going through a series in First Peter. We've had a couple of weeks off, and we're dipping back into it today, which is great. I feel very humbled by this morning's text, and uh, there's no end of, of preparation that could go into one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, as we'll come to uh, spend a little bit of time on later. Um, but one of the things that I have learnt through this process is that the point of some of the more difficult passages are far easier to understand than the detail. So we'll come to that a little bit later. But just to bring you up to speed, First Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, who walked with Jesus, um, uh, written to a persecuted, scattered, exiled Christians who were living in the Asia Minor region, which is now modern-day Turkey. The purpose of Peter's letter, and it's so important to continue to remember the purpose of the letter, is he's writing to an uh, exiled minority who are living in a majority of people who are disobedient to God. Uh, these Christians are 
being persecuted for their faith, and Peter is wanting to encourage them and to remind them of the living hope that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. He is victorious over evil. He will overcome, and all who follow him and live for him, even though they may be persecuted in this life, will be vindicated, and God will have the final say. And Peter just wants to keep bringing his readers back to that point. Um, the last time we were in 2 Peter, we were kind of covering off the section where Peter was talking in particular about wives uh, and about Christian spouses and marriages. And that was in a broader context of how Christians live godly lives in, in, in a pagan society with that kind of headline statement of live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And that was kind of the headline statement. And then Peter talks about um, citizens, how they're to respond, uh, slaves under oppressive masters, and how spouses um, are to treat one another. And he kind of, that sort of brings us where we're up to today in chapter 3, verse 8. So we're going to walk through the passage as we do each week. And uh, let's just uncover what God has for us today. Let's just say a word of prayer just to open up our hearts prepare to receive what it is God has for us. I don't even know exactly what God would have for us this morning. I sort of feel like I've done all this study and research and want to just come and share with you. But what is it that the Holy Spirit wants us to learn and hear today? What do we need to hear? Um, I believe he has something for us. Let's just come now and, and be open to receive what that may be. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to open up this wonderful word of yours, which is alive and living. And uh, so, Father, I pray that you would make your word living in our hearts this morning. What is it, Lord, that you would have us understand that we might apply to our lives, that we may be encouraged as the people of God to stand more resolutely and firmly for you in the face of ongoing persecution for our faith, wherever that appears and whatever that looks like. Help us to understand what this meant, but also help us to understand what you want this to mean for us today as we find ourselves seeking to follow you in a different culture, in a different context, but the same God. Uh, And the challenges that we face might look different on the surface, but in a spiritual realm are oftentimes very similar. So, Lord, we just open to, we're just open to receive what you would have for us this morning. And uh, I thank you for your Holy Spirit who is working through me and pray that the words that come from my lips, Lord, would be your words and from your heart and your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the passage that we're looking at this morning, chapter 3, verse 8 to 22, kind of comes under the umbrella of suffering for doing good. Suffering for doing good. Again, really helpful if we just continue to keep that theme in mind. It starts to tie things together and some of those more difficult passages start to make more sense when we understand that it's under that particular umbrella. So let's just walk through. 1 Peter 3, 8 to 9. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. 
essentially what Peter is saying here is in summary of everything he's just said, you know, he's been addressing um, citizens and slaves and spouses. He's now kind of just saying all of you, like all God's people who he's speaking to, I want to sum up everything that I've been saying about how to live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he comes. And the first thing that he wants to do is he wants to remind them about the primacy of loving God's people. Loving God's people. Be like-minded. And and what he's talking about there is unity, not uniformity. We don't all have to be exactly the same. And certainly my experience in a church context is that there is diversity. And diversity is fine. But it's actually learning to cooperate together in that diversity that is unifying. So be like-minded, cooperate together, learn to get along, uh, because that's what's important as you seek to be a witness. Be sympathetic, be understanding of one another. Love one another. The original word there is brotherly love, and it's that familial tone. It's loving one another like family, because after all, is that not what the body of Christ is? We're to treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's that familial love. Be compassionate, genuine, authentic care, and have a humble attitude towards one another. So again, the reminder of the importance of loving God's people. Now, uh, certain commentators are sort of questioning whether Peter is particularly addressing whether these verses are um, just targeted at the way God's people interact with one another or if they're the way that God's people are to act to outsiders as well. It's probably fair to say that it would be good to do both. Um, Peter is very clearly writing to believers and in this particular moment he is, I think, speaking to the way that Christians treat and relate to one another. But in fact, these are all the the hallmarks of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So in fact, we should have the same um, attitude and approach to relating to people outside of the church. But of course, uh, Peter in particular, as does Paul, has a serious concern for how people in the church treat one another. Because Jesus said, after all, that the world will know that we're his disciples by our love for one another. Secondly, uh, sorry, so the church at its best is a living embodiment um, of how God intends people to relate to one another. Second Peter then talks about love for enemies. So loving God's people, but then love for enemies. And the normal human response when someone does something wrong to you is is to seek justice. It's that whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If someone wrongs me, then I want to wrong them. And that's, that's demanding justice. And Peter's saying, no, you're to be different. You're actually to extend mercy because God has extended mercy to you. Undeserved mercy. You didn't deserve the mercy God has shown you. So if someone does something wrong to you, as a demonstration of what God has done for you, you extend mercy to that person. You are to repay evil with blessing. This is so contrary, isn't it, to what we would normally do, what our kind of natural response. Um, It's a very hard thing to do. A very hard thing to do. To repay evil with blessing. And... I've been thinking of examples in Scripture where we see this, and you might think of others. The one that comes to mind that's just so clear for me um, is the example of Christ on the cross 
praying for the forgiveness of those who have put him there. He's praying for forgiveness for those who have crucified him. Is that not an example of repaying evil with blessing? Now, it doesn't mean that it's easy. (laughs) It's not. But this is actually what Peter is suggesting that as followers of Jesus we're to do. Throughout our life, we are to continually respond with the Spirit of Christ. And it's going to be super hard, but that's why he's given us his Holy Spirit. And so with God's help, we're to repay evil with blessing. I don't know what this is going to look like in your life. But I invite you to examine your life and the situations that you find yourself in. Maybe there's a situation that you're going through right now. And you'd much rather adjust kind of reaction where you seek to repay a person for what they've done to you with uh, equal treatment but in fact the the word to us here is to actually respond with blessing which is so countercultural. and peter says that will enable us to inherit a blessing um, the people of god are actually called to follow in the footsteps of jesus And uh, interestingly, of course, there will be blessing in that um, eternally. But I think the passage also seems to indicate from the psalm that will soon be quoted that there is also immediate earthly blessing if you actually seek to take this approach um, on board. And that will become a little clearer as we work through Peter's passage. It's going to completely catch the person off guard and it might just shine a light into a dark place and it might just bring that person a little bit closer towards Jesus. You were called to do this. Um, That's what God's people are called to do and you will inherit a blessing. Above all, above all, brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians are to be known for their love, for their love for one another, but also their love for those who are not part of the body of Christ and in fact for those who inflict pain and suffering upon them we are still in those situations to be known for our love if we're only known for our love in good situations that's actually not going to make much of a difference is it it's actually when we face persecution and suffering that we repay that with blessing that we really have an opportunity to witness the difference that Christ makes in our lives let's keep moving 1 Peter 3, 10 to 12. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Um, What Peter is doing here is he's quoting from Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16 psalm 34 is a beautiful psalm it was written by david and it was actually written uh, when he was fleeing uh, his son absalom who was wanting to murder him so interestingly enough the psalm that peter uses to quote was written in a context of persecution and he's quoting it to christians who are being persecuted and uh, he he's wanting to I guess, highlight a particular aspect of the psalm that the, the theme of the psalm is, is kind of vindication over one's enemies. Um, the, the theme of the psalm is that God will be victorious. God will rescue, redeem his people in the most dire circumstances. 
And it doesn't mean that life is always going to be peachy. And we can see even for David, he's in a very difficult situation when he writes this psalm, but his eyes and his heart are focused on Christ. We're to love God, we're to love our enemies, and we're to love life. That's a really neat statement, isn't it? Whoever would love life. It's actually an intentional, and it's actually suggesting that we should love life. We should be people who enjoy life. Um, and it's, it's a deliberate act of the will. And loving life doesn't mean that life's going to be easy, but it does mean having that orientation that says, God has given me this life. Life is a gift from God. It should be enjoyed. It should be lived to His glory. And uh, we as Christians ought to be known as people of love, people who love life, people who have a zest for life because we know the, the giver and the author of life. Um, there's a, a, a sense there of just wanting to take a really a, posi- a positive approach to life, to be optimistic, to see the good in life, to not always be so pessimistic. Uh, and, and it's an interesting message in the face of persecution, both that David, the author of the psalm, is facing, uh, but also Peter's audience are facing. He's saying, whoever of you would love life. Um, and then he kind of outlines these things that will contribute towards, uh, generally speaking, contribute towards a better life. <laughs> contribute towards a better life. And the first one is controlling our tongues. And it's interesting in this passage of Scripture, there's several references to speech. And I've been reflecting on the significance of speech in life and in relationships. Much of our relationships are actually built on speech, how we communicate with one another. Our relationships both with um, the body of Christ, but also relationships with those who are not part of the body of Christ, even those who we might consider our enemies. A lot of that is focused around speech and so how we speak is really significant has a significant bearing on those relationships whether those relationships flourish or fail and so to think about our speaking um, really important to turn from evil and do good to seek and pursue peace they're very active terms aren't they It's not a passive approach. If you're going to love life, you need to be intentional. You need to be deliberate. There are certain things you're going to need to do and there are certain things you're going to need to turn away from. We're going to need to focus on being people of love and being people of peace and we're going to need to turn away and run from that which is evil and repay it with blessing. Live an intentional life of love and uh, in that In that psalm, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to that prayer, to their prayer. Live an intentional life of love. God is watching you and listening to you. And what the psalmist is meaning is it's not it's not this kind of like, be careful, God's watching you. He's going to smite you if you do the wrong thing. I need, you know, you kind of need to be fearful of God. No, it's actually God is with you. God is with you. God is for you as you seek to be a blessing in those difficult situations. God is watching you and God is listening to your prayers as you cry out to him, Lord, how on earth do I be a blessing to this person when they're causing me so much grief? God is with you. 
He sees you. He hears you. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? It's a rhetorical question. And Peter's a realist, as we will see. But what he is also indicating here is if you seek to be a person who wants to live life, you're going to love God's people to the best of your capacity, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're going to seek to repay evil with blessing, then you're going to increase the chances of living an unaccused life. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In this particular section of Peter's um, message about suffering for doing good, he's quoting a couple of Old Testament passages before he draws on the example of Christ. We just saw the example of Psalm 34. And uh, here, well, he, I think he draws on Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of, the righteous, because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Remember, Peter was with Jesus when he gave his sermon on the mount. And I think, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed just imagine Peter. Oh, this is what Jesus spoke about. But also, Peter is going to pick up on Isaiah 8, verses 12 to 13. Now, he quotes a section of verse 12. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. Do not fear their threats do not be frightened. Now, an interesting thing to note as well is that a little bit like Psalm 34, Isaiah chapter 8 is written to a persecuted minority. <laughs> and again, what the, what the author is doing is saying, take your eyes off the threat, take your eyes off the people and put your eyes on Christ, on God. Now, in Isaiah, verse 13, the, the verse that follows verse 12 that Peter has just quoted, says this, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Now, in the Old Testament, the Lord Almighty refers to God, the Father. Okay? What Peter is doing in this instance is one of many things. He's firstly highlighting his Christology. Um, Christology simply means his theology of Christ um, and the fact that Christ is God. And you can see what Peter does is he, he quotes from Isaiah 8.12 and then he almost completes verse 13 but with a New Testament slant. Um, Sorry, I've gone ahead. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, as opposed to um, setting apart God. He's now, Peter is now putting Christ in the place of God. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope 
that you have. Uh, so what, what, what Peter is doing here is saying, um, when you truly honor and worship something, you set it apart. And this is what, what the writer of, the, of Isaiah was doing in the Old Testament, was saying in the face of threat and persecution, take your eyes away from that which you are fearful of and turn that into fearing God and honoring God and worshiping him. And Peter's saying the same thing to, to his followers, to the followers of Jesus, to focus on Christ, to set him apart, to worship him alone as Lord. And, uh, and by doing that, um, then you are truly offering him the worship that he is due. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. There's an assumption that you are going to be asked, and you are going to be asked when you repay evil with blessing. You're not going to be asked if you just kind of are nice to those who are nice to you and you repay evil with evil. But if you repay evil with blessing, you're going to be asked... What's different? What's going on? And that's kind of, that's when the opportunity arises. And that we then have the opportunity to speak about the hope that we have, uh, the hope of salvation. And what Peter is getting at here is the lordship of Christ. If Christ um, is set apart in our hearts, we're to live for him and, and to, to him alone. We're to seek first the kingdom of God. We're to be prepared to speak about our salvation that's made available by Christ and the hope that we have. And, you know, we might have an answer that, that we can give. Um, we might have some words that we can speak. But what's the life behind the answer? Does your life speak to a life of hope in Christ? And, uh, and the encouragement, I think, is to personalise it personalize it what's what is the story what is your life story behind your answer so you know we might feel like well we can give a we can give a brief gospel response and yes that's critically important but personalize it make it real for you like this is the hope that i have uh, it's uh, people can't argue with that um, and it's individual as well so how does that hope play out in your life? You might have some situations that you can draw on and actually talk about what a difference setting Christ apart as Lord and having him as your primary purpose and focus in life, what a difference that makes and the hope that you have of your salvation. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it, it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter here is wanting to um, focus his readers, his audience on keeping a clear conscience and respectful answers rather than defensive ones, are more likely to lead to conversations. If you have a defensiveness, it's going to shut the conversation down. Whereas if you speak with gentleness and respect, it's going to potentially lead more to a conversation where there'll be more opportunity to share about the difference uh, that salvation makes in your life. Interesting here, how you witness is part of your witness. <laughs> how you do it is a witness in and of itself. Remove the content, just how it's delivered, for example. Um, 
is very much part of the witness. And it comes back, I mentioned a moment ago, how the emphasis that's placed on speaking here, how we speak to and about people really matters. It's a profound opportunity to witness Christ. I've been thinking a bit about this. Just the way that I speak. I'm not, I'm not even talking about speaking about the gospel or about the hope of salvation. I'm literally just referring to the way that I speak in every single conversation, in every detail of my life, the way I interact with people at the, at the shops, the way I interact with people wherever I go, when I'm running with someone or whatever I'm doing, whatever you're doing, the way that we speak to our neighbours, just the way that we speak can be a witness. It can actually highlight, wow, there's something really different about this person. Their speech is so respectful, so thoughtful, so considered. They actually really think about the way they speak. Like, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm surrounded by people, not in this church, of course, I'm not in church, but do you not feel that in the world, you, it feels like there are a lot of people that just don't really care or think about how they speak? They're just kind of whatever? Um, if we give more considered thought to how we speak, um, that in itself is a powerful witness. So much of human life is speaking, isn't it? It's amazing. It's amazing. And how we speak about others as well. Having a clear conscience is part of living a good life. Like living a life that's free of accusation. Who wants to live constantly in, in being accused? And So again, Peter actually wants, he wants believers to live free lives of accusation. Ultimately, for the sake of the gospel, of course. But also, he knows that if we're on about loving one another, if we're on about loving our enemies, and if we're on about loving life, then living lives free of accusation um, is just a, a recipe for living a good life. I just want to remind us that Peter's talking to people who are suffering, who are suffering for their faith. And he's going to use another, he's going to draw on an example of Christ um, to highlight, to encourage his readers. On Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Now, the first thing to say is that this is just really difficult to understand. I am not going to try and stand here and pretend that I've kind of got it all together. In fact, we're in good company. Um, Martin Luther said, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage than perhaps any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Um, you know, I've done so much reading about this. I'll be kind of pleased to move on from it, to be honest. Um, 
And in a sense, the more, more reading you do, the more confusing it becomes. There's so much conjecture about various points of this text. But as I mentioned right at the beginning, the, um, the point of why Peter is saying it, which I'll try and get us to that point quickly, is easier to understand than the detail. Um, there are Now, Scripture's really helpful. Oftentimes, Scripture can actually interpret itself. So there's some other Scriptures that I'm just going to share with you briefly that help us understand or get a better grasp on what's going on here. So 1 Peter 3... Um, oh, so, sorry, this is, this is the section we're going to deal with at the moment. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit um, and so forth. Okay, so Genesis 6, so there's reference made to Noah in the days of Noah. So let's just have a look at this. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, so they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. And just two things in this particular passage. The sons of God there is also a word for angels. Um, the word is used in the book of Job. Um, and Job is, from my understanding, Job is kind of in Genesis, like contextually and chronologically. Job is kind of in the Genesis period, really early on. Um, so this, the word sons of God, this one of the conjectures is the word sons of God is used for angels, but what we see here is fallen angels. Okay? Now where there's conjecture is people don't know whether or not these angels are just good angels or fallen angels. But we're going to run for now with them being fallen angels. Um, and what is a fallen angel? A fallen angel is a demon. Okay? So basically demons are coming to earth and they're having relations with women and the offspring of the demons and the women are called Nephilim. And the, this perhaps could be where Goliath, say, for example, comes from. Um, although that's, that's post-flood, so probably not. I'm not sure. As I said, there's a lot of mystery in this text, and I'm not going to try and explain it all. But um, uh, it's a little bit weird, and what seems to be going on is... Um, you know, it's about evil, I guess. It's about evil. Um, and, and that leads to the flood. 2 Peter 2 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains to dar of darkness to be held for judgment. We're not going to look at 2 Peter, but Peter continues to speak about this. Now, one of the things I've thought to myself this week is how does Peter know this stuff? Um, and I'm going to assume that when Jesus, before he ascended, there's this 40-day period where he's appearing to his apostles, the disciples. And, uh, you know, I just imagine that he and Peter took a long walk. So, Lord, what you been up to? <laughs> and that could have been part of the conversation. Jude 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Okay, so there's a couple of different verses in Scripture that shed a little bit more light that I think seem to affirm that these are fallen angels. Um, so here's just a couple of things. Uh, we're just switching out of kind of sermon mode into classroom mode. Is that okay? So it's just kind of just sharing some information just to try and give you... like. 
I've been thinking a lot about this, and one of, one of the roles of preaching, as much as it's to encourage and exhort you to greater faithfulness in Christ, I think preaching is also about helping people understand the Bible. Like, I, one of my goals with preaching is that when you read a passage that's been preached on, you'll actually understand it or have a better understanding than when you first came to it. So I don't want to just brush over this because that doesn't equip you to best understand God's Word. You have, you have invited me to be your pastor so that one of my great privileges is to feed you God's Word. And sometimes God's Word's difficult. And so I... In, Keeping with due diligence, I want to try and help you understand this. So there's just a few things here that um, kind of it's a bit all over the shop, but it's just more of a classroom setting where you can just kind of talk a bit more freely. Does that make sense? So there's some, these are some of the things that bring up conjecture. The first one is the spirit. Now, in um, your, if you have an NIV Bible, he was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. Now, you'll see there there's a capital S for spirit. Now that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Whenever there's a capital S, that's referring to the Holy Spirit. Now the interesting thing is that with the Greek text, they didn't have capitals. There's no capitals in Greek. Okay? So um, what you will find, uh, and the, one of the very difficult tasks of Bible translators is, is working out and identifying when spirit is referring to the Holy Spirit or when it's referring to spirits. Now, again, in the, in the New Testament, spirits, that word spirits, is only ever used for angels and demons. It is never a word that is used for humans. Um, so the, the conjecture comes up here is, is the author, was Peter speaking about Jesus being raised by the Holy Spirit or is it, a, is it more about the contrast between the flesh and the spirit? So in that sense, we all, Jesus included, have a, a physical body and a spirit. And the interesting, I guess where the conjecture, really, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. Um, some Bibles will have a lower S and some will have a capital S. Um, where the conjecture there lies is probably more around when Christ actually went and made this proclamation. So there's lots of, lots of conjecture over, the, was it a pre or a post-resurrection proclamation? And to be frank, it really doesn't matter. The point is not when he went and did it. The point is why he did it. Now, the, another word that, that, that causes conjecture is this word proclamation, because it interchangeably is also used with the word preaching throughout the New Testament. Now, what's the role of preaching? Is not the role of preaching to preach and proclaim the gospel, that people might turn from their sins and turn to Christ? So there are some schools of thought that think that Jesus actually went and preached the gospel and offered the hope of salvation to people who had already been cast into darkness. Um, so that's, but, but interestingly... Um, it would appear that in this context, the word proclamation has the secular tones about heralding and proclaiming a message. So it is different to the word that is used for proclaiming the gospel, which is the good news. Um, so that's another area where it gets a little bit interesting. We talked about spirits. Um, uh, now, it, again, the NIV will read imprisoned spirits, um, what is being referred to here is, is Hades or the underworld. It's a, 
um, this kind of a temporary place for, unbe- for the unbelieving dead. Uh, a temporary place. And the Bible actually backs this up. Now, the word Hades, uh, it, well, Hades is a, was a Greek god of the underworld. And it would appear that the Greeks believed that everyone, that when they died, they went to the underworld. Um, but the New Testament uses the word Hades uh, to refer to it as a temporal place of disembodied, disobedient spirits. Now, it's not the final death. In Revelation 21, um, it actually says that Hades gave up its dead and then both death and Hades are thrown into the the lake of fire, which is the second death. So the Bible does actually affirm that there is this kind of temporal place for those who have been disobedient to God. Now, don't fear because it's not a place that Christians will ever go to. Um, in Luke chapter 16, there's the parable of the blind beggar and Lazarus. And in that particular parable, if you went and have a look at it, Luke chapter 16, this is where it's in these, when we're going through a scripture, when we're going through a book, super helpful if you've got your Bible so you can cross-reference and just really dig in. But in that, there's, um, so the, the rich man is in, is in Hades, And it talks about it being a place of torment. But he can see uh, Lazarus. Uh, Whether it might be a poor man and Lazarus or Lazarus and a rich man, I'm a little bit confused there. But but basically, the, the, the righteous man, if you like, is in a temporal place, but he's not suffering. And the unrighteous man is in a temporal place of suffering. So, and remember to, to the thief on the cross, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So in terms of a what happens to me when I die theology, because a text like this does seem to bring that up, um, we don't just go nowhere. Our spirits do go to be with Jesus. But resurrection, but resurrection speaks of a bodily resurrection. Um, so there's a sense of the spirit being held with, in the presence of Jesus um, temporarily until the final judgment, okay? And at the final judgment, body and spirit are reunited, that's resurrection, and then people are either going to one of two places. Does that make sense? Um, now, what did Christ proclaim? Well, we don't know. It doesn't actually say what he proclaimed, but it was probably... If we're, if we're going with the fact that these are fallen angels, that they've been cast into Hades, which is a place of um, temporary suffering, and he's not preaching the gospel, he's proclaiming a heralded message, it's a declaration of victory over Satan and his demons. It's a triumphant proclamation of overcoming sin and death and evil. Interestingly, to the very ones who at the very start of creation, Genesis chapter 6, chose to deliberately walk away from God and then impregnate humanity with evil and sinfulness. Does that make sense? So Jesus is going right back to the source of evil in, 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 those, in that sense. Now, why on earth is this here? is Peter's point and it's it's actually not as hard it's 
Christ has triumphed over his enemies. Now, that's an interesting little exercise for us here on a Sunday morning. Uh, I'm sure you haven't really given much thought, and you probably won't give it too much thought after this. Um, but for Peter's readers, it was, it was obviously a point that really helped them. And I think it can help us too, this. Christ has triumphed over his enemies. Vindication will come to faithful Christians who have been persecuted for their faith. Christians have been, will be, will continue to be persecuted for their faith. And in the face of suffering and persecution, what does a person need to know? They need to see hope. They need to see a light. Remember the big theme of this series, living hope. Peter is offering his readers living hope that Christ has been victorious. Not only in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm. Stick with him. Keep your eyes focused on him. Scott McKnight writes, I believe these verses are attached here to emphasize the victory that Jesus achieved in order that the readers can perceive that if they live the way Jesus lived, doing good, they will also find ultimate victory in spite of the persecutions that loom on their horizon. Now, just this final bit, and I'll go real brief. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So it's a bit hard to see that. Noah's Ark. Peter draws on the story of Noah. Why? Will you think about the story of Noah? He is a persecuted minority living amongst a disobedient majority. You know, it talks about like eight people being saved out of a whole, well, however many, a whole, whole world of people. And again, the example there is to highlight the salvation that the ark offered to Noah and his family. And Peter likens the, uh, the ark enabled the people on the ark to pass through the waters of judgment safely. And he uses the reference, or he speaks about baptism and how, you know, when we go, we think about this, when you go with baptism, when you go under the water, you don't stay there, right? You come through, you come through. And, and, and so through Christ, you are saved by coming through the waters. So your salvation in Christ is a little bit like the ark, it takes you through, you pass through the waters of judgment. Now, some interesting things to note is that in Peter's day and when Peter's writing, the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized believer. It knows nothing. So every single person that Peter is writing to has been baptized. And there isn't the same, again, conjecture that there would be today where um, we, we absolutely uphold baptism and would encourage all people to be baptised as a demonstration of an inward reality. We don't proclaim that baptism saves people and that's not what Peter is doing here. Um, He's not suggesting that just the very act of baptism. He is saying that what baptism represents is what saves. At the end of the day, that final verse 22, with Christ now seated in the power of, with all authorities being in submission to him, is saying to the readers, the reign of Christ is the last word.
brothers and sisters, that is my best attempt at 1 Peter 3, 8 to 22. Let's... Thank you for... Uh... Thank you for your time this morning. Um, shall we pray? And, uh... and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Yep. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to you before you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have gathered around your table and, uh, and worshipped you and received... Uh, the elements of your bread and uh, that remind us of your broken body and your blood poured out. Thank you for your word and, Lord, this difficult passage. Um, Father, we just pray that you would continue to uh, illuminate your word into our hearts that we may understand, but more importantly, that we may follow you and be reminded of that uh, wonderful truth, Lord Jesus, that you are victorious. And that as we seek to truly be your people, um, by loving one another, by loving our enemies and repaying those who do wrong to us with good and with blessing, that opportunities will arise where we can share our faith. But Lord, even when we're persecuted and when we're accused and when we suffer for doing right and when we suffer for following you, we thank you for that incredible reminder and encouragement that Jesus, you're victorious, that you've overcome and that we can trust in you, that we can put our faith in you as uh, the one who is sovereign. We love you, Lord, and we thank you again for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.